On our theme, Piercing the Darkness, tonight the theme is weights hindering light or blocking out the light. And uh, our passage is going to be in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 1. Some of you remember this, Eric Little. He was the famous runner in the 1924 Olympics who is depicted in the movie Chariots of Fire. He became, after his running, he became a missionary to China. And after a few years, when China was at war with Japan, most of the missionaries hurriedly left China and returned to Scotland. Let me just digress for a second. 150 years ago, Scotland was one of the main missionary-sending countries in the world. Now, it is one of the most needy countries in the world. So just as the light pierces the darkness, just remember that if you fail to do your job where God has placed you, the darkness will surely encroach as the light recedes. So the United States has been the great leader in missions in the past 60, 70 years. Let me just share this. When Karen and I left for the field for South Africa, American church planters were 80% of the church planters around the world. Other nationalities were the other 20%. Now, American church planters are 20% of the church planters around the world, and 80% of the work is being done by others, notably the South Koreans, the Brazilians, the Indians, the Chinese, not the American Indians, okay, the India Indians, the Chinese, and South Africa has made it into the top 10. I was privileged a couple of years ago to speak at a mission conference at the first church that we were involved in planting in the 90s. And as I s stood there speaking to an auditorium of 300 people, there were no Americans. This was a mission conference by South Africans sending out South Africans. It's phenomenal. That was my uttermost part of the world, and now it was their Jerusalem sending their own people out. That is when you know that your mission cycle is complete, is when the nationals are actually sending missionaries to other countries. Well, so all of these missionaries, when the war took place, decided to return to Scotland on his team. Eric decided to stay behind and ended up in an internment camp with missionaries, foreign business people, and their children. Eric Little once wrote, we are all missionaries. Wherever we go, we either bring people nearer to the light of Christ or we repel them from Christ. It is for us to run our race well, to put off the hindering weights and to give our all for Christ. Though a fiery runner, Eric was a gentle and a godly soul. He settled disputes between missionaries. He served the children by teaching them and playing games with them in this internment camp until terrible headaches overtook him. It was a brain tumor that suddenly took his life. His friends sat beside Eric while he was dying, wishing they had sent him back to Scotland. But Eric answered, it's complete surrender. That's what life's about. And those were his last words. He died that night. Our text this evening, Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 1. Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance 
the race that is set before us. Familiar words, but may God give us a new challenge as a result of seeing them again this evening. Let's pray. Yahweh, our Father, our Creator, our Redeemer, and our Friend, we are but poor and fallen and broken humans, yet possessing your image and yet redeemed now twice bearing your image because we have within us your spirit. Thank you for this great salvation that you've provided for us. Thank you for the gospel, the good news of this salvation that you've placed in our hearts and hopefully upon our lips. Father, we need to be changed tonight. We need to be challenged. Our Senses are lying to us continually, Father, that the stuff that is around us is somehow going to last forever. When all of this, we know from your word, all of this is going to burn. And so, Father, help us not to be the people that allow weights in our lives that hold us back from doing your, your will. May we not be clinging in our stubbornness to our comfort zones in the way that we have things now. As we think about missions, Father, perhaps there are some here motivated to move, but there are weights holding them back. Help them, I pray, to see that tonight. And so we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, first is unpacking the text. Let's quickly open up the verse and examine what it says. Of course, Hebrews was written by... Okay, next point... <laughs> We don't really know. I believe it was Barnabas. Come on, bring it. I don't know much theology, but I'm a lawyer and I can argue with you, okay? Now, we know that the purpose of the book, it was written to Hebrew Christians, saying this. They were starting to take real heat for having walked away from the practices of Judaism. And guys, you don't know what the, I had, a, I had a young lady come into my office when I was practicing law, and she, um, she said, I've had something very difficult happen in my life. And I said, okay. She said, I've trusted Yeshua as my personal savior. She's a Messianic Jew, Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the Savior. I said, okay. She said, my portion of the estate coming from my parents would have been $13 million, and my father has written me out of the will. Ever had that happen to you? Nah, I kind of doubt it. She was wondering whether she should sue her father. I said, probably not the best thing you want to do as your first step as a Christian, to sue your parents. Not a real great testimony. But these Jews back in this era were losing family relations, they were losing their jobs, they were losing what was then their social security of, of being linked in with family. And they were in bad shape. And so some of them were like, you know what? I can't handle this pressure here. I'm going back. No, don't go back. Yeah, I'm going back to the temple. I'm going back to the synagogue. I can't, I can't handle this. If I, I, I can believe in Yeshua, but I'm going back to the synagogue anyway because then they'll leave me alone. And so they started to leave. And the writer of Hebrews is arguing, guys, Yeshua is immeasurably better. And if you want to sum up in Hebrews in one word, it's that, better. 
Jesus is better than angels. He's better than Moses. He's better than the high priest. He's better than the Old Testament sacrifices. He created a better covenant through, the, through his own blood offered once for everyone. So the writer says, don't walk away. And as he's going through, he says, you're in good company with great people of the past, people who decided to let go and live out fully for God and people who were blasted out of their comfort zone when God called and they responded in faith, suffering terrible loss. Loss of their home, loss of relationships, and oftentimes loss of health and loss of life. Hebrews 11 is referred to as this hall of faith. Most of you are familiar with that. Hebrews 12.1 says, therefore, okay, I've gone through this list of people who are committed full out to walk with God, and God took them to some places that they did not want to go. God did not spare them from suffering. God did not spare his own son from suffering. You're being surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, and these witnesses will tell you God is faithful. Don't give up. When it gets hard, don't give up. A lot of American Christians now are very worried with the political climate that somehow, you know, America's going down the tubes. Well, let me just say this, because I used to kind of dally in politics a little bit. You lose a nation, people, the way you win a nation, and that is one person at a time. If we fail to do the hard thing of each of us making new disciples, then as society goes on, fewer and fewer people will be Christians. And if you always do what you've always done, then you're always going to get what you always got. And so if we have a society today that will not elect a Christian because it doesn't believe that way, the fault doesn't lie in politics or in maneuvering or in fancy speeches. The fault lies with us who have failed to do the hard thing, hoping that America will be a Christian nation if we get a Christian in the White House. And my evangelistic side and my evil side, even though evil doesn't exist, my evil side wants to vote for Bernie Sanders just to keep the fire on the church so that we don't let down our guard. <laughs> I'm going to struggle at the booth. I'm gonna be, Karen's going to be like, David, you mind yourself. You vote responsibly. I don't know. Bring the persecution. Wake up the church. So he says you're surrounded by these witnesses, these testifiers that God is faithful during the hard times. And when you die, uh, you go home, you die as a martyr, you're, you're received into glory, and you realize what, what, sorry, what I was living for wasn't really real. Teenagers will tell you, the guy's the game, right? Have you ever been in World War II? 1942? The tanks are coming around the corner. The guys are opening fire. You got a sniper on the roof. You're sweating. And then mom calls you for dinner. Yeah, you're in a first-person shooter, and you know, you're, you're like, and now they got these screens that are coming around you, and now the goggles, and it's like, whoa, it's going to be immersive pretty soon. But then mom calls you for dinner, and you realize, I was in a cyber reality. One day, I promise you, you're going to die, and you're going to wake up, and you're going to say, 
Ah, this is the real reality. What was I doing? What was I doing living for everything down there? Ay, 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 I got to make up for lost time. No, it's too late. What was I doing? So the writer says this. He says, lay aside, take off, put down anything that slows, slows you down or trips you up. The imagery, obviously, of a race. It assumes that you're in the race, you're on the track, you're interested in running, and that you run, want to run well. And so he says, two things hold you back. Weights and sins that cling closely, sins that entangle, sins that trip us up. I call them pet sins. Now, you may wonder, why did I, this is a great message, but what does it have to do with mission? Well, let me argue the applicability to missions, okay? This verse has an application to anyone in the Christian life, but missions, it seems to fit well. Granted, not everyone in Hebrews 11 was a missionary, but... Look at how many of these heroes, these light bearers, at God's bidding, left the places where they were raised, left the places where they were comfortable. Noah, <laughs> his home really changed. I mean, everything changed. Abraham and Sarah coming out of Ur of Chaldea, up across the Fertile Crescent, and down to a place they had not, not ever seen, not known. Joseph, same thing, carried off into slavery. Moses, coming out of Egypt and up to another place. These people were constantly on the move. Some of the judges, same thing. A lot of the prophets, think of Jonah having to go to an enemy empire, the Assyrians, and to share with them about repenting and following Jehovah. So all of these people left their comfort zone. So many of them died for it on the way. He also says, looking back at Hebrews 11, that's fine, but Verse 2, we'll cheat ahead. He says, look at Jesus, who was the light, the author and finisher of our faith. He was sent away from home. He was sent away from comfort. He was sent away from family, the presence of God the Father, to accomplish a mission. In fact, Hebrews in chapter 3 actually refers to Jesus as the apostle of our faith. Apostolos in the Greek means a sent one. Jesus was a sent one. He was sent on a mission. That's why he said at the end, he said, as the Father sent me, so send I you. So Jesus was sent on a mission. So the context here is of people who left comforts and faced risks to obey God as missionaries do. Now, I've pondered this verse for years, memorized it when I was a kid, and it puzzles me. Lay aside every weight and sin. Weights and sins. Sins and weights. Weight is not a restatement of sin, so weight, a weight is not a sin. It's something different. And so what I want to do is deal with them in reverse order. The first thing is pet sins. Pet sins hindering light. The writer says we need to lay aside besetting sins. Sins that trip us up. Sins that cling closely. Sins that entangle. I think you know what I'm talking about. And none of us would want to talk about it. That sin, you know, that one, the one that your wife doesn't know about, 
the one that your husband doesn't know about. And you appear so good at church. And you appear so well even to maybe family members, but there's this sin. Cling so closely. A pet, I call it a pet sin, of course. A pet is something that lives close by you. You feed it, nurture it, and it brings you joy for a moment. Now, we tend to think of this, you know, as a pet, as a a warm, fuzzy thing. But I want you to think of your pet sin as this character. (laughs) If there is ever an evil-looking dog, that's it. One of those chihuahuas. Many of you are running well, and others would also say so. But you have this sin or two that you haven't killed. You haven't laid aside. You know the familiar pattern, sin, confess, sin, confess, sin, confess, sin, confess. But you refuse to forsake and renounce. You refuse to do anything extreme like cutting off your right hand, like Jesus said. Finished teaching two years as a professor at a Christian university. And I mean, a good school, one of the finest with 95% of the guys admitting that they had an ongoing problem with pornography. And 35% of the girls having a problem with pornography. Yeah, it's not just the guys anymore. The besetting sins. Maybe it's an abuse of prescriptive medication. Maybe it's the leisure you give yourself, the luxury of, of rage and lashing out at people, verbally abusing them or physically abusing them. Maybe it's the sin of anxiety and worry, which basically thrusts a finger in God's face and says, you screwed up my life, and I'm not going to let you do it again. Yeah, let's call it what it is. The besetting sin that tangles us. Living life in this funk of apathetic mediocrity, frittering your time away, living in an ongoing state of defeat, And saying, I could never really serve if people knew who I was. And so, no, I don't want to. And no, I don't want to talk about why I don't want to help out. Let the superheroes do it. And then there's me living a life of defeat. Writer Hebrews says, lay aside those besetting sins, the sins that trip you up. You've got a race to run here. Don't be sitting there fooling around with the dog at the beginning starting line. Get in the race. Leave the dog behind. There is too much to do, too much at stake. Don't. I mean, if we spent five minutes on the edge of hell and five minutes on the edge of heaven, we'd be forever changed, and we'd stop messing around with this stuff. Getting rid of these sins. Lay it aside. Get rid of it. Make it a thing of your past. Your God can use you in a mighty way in his calling. He will provide his grace to help you, but we flail around. And so we have to download this grace and say, help me to stand against this thing and call this thing evil and hate it and make a plan to kill it. You might need to kill your smartphone. You might need to get a dumb phone. And people say, what are you doing with a dumb phone? You say, smart people have dumb phones. 
All right, so the first thing is sins. But then there's this thing called weights, and she's not worried about her weight. That's not the picture. That's not the point. Weights that hinder light. As Christians, we normally think of sin as the enemy. But what I'm arguing this evening is that most often it is weights that hinder people from going into missions rather than outright sins. Weights. Non-sinful things that slow you down. These things can't be idols because that would be a sin. But they could become idols. So most of these 10 things I'm going to talk to you about just now, this list, all by themselves, they're good things. But they can be weights. Normally, a weight in your life can be detected when you think of missions. And I say, would you be willing to serve in missions? And you say, oh, I... (laughs) I could never do missions because fill in the blank. I could never, I could never do missions because I fill in the blank. That's the weight that I'm getting at. My Karen and I brainstormed 10 things that in our 22 years of missions, we have seen our weights that keep people from responding to God, burdening them with an opportunity. They're not wrong. Most of them are good in and of themselves. Number one, possessions. You have it so nice. And the thought of selling all of your special treasures at a yard sale, packing up into a 20-foot container and moving to a place where you need to mirror the living conditions of those around you, that that (laughs) just doesn't compute. You can't imagine. I mean, you're thinking of your home. But let me remind you guys, Matthew 19, the rich young ruler coming to Jesus and saying, Good master, I would inherit eternal life. Jesus gave him the easy shot first go around. He said, hey, go keep all the commandments. Be a moral guy. He said, all this I've done from my youth. <laughs> I've got this one. Jesus said, really? Yeah, you're, you're right. Now, get this, preacher. Uh, you know, what an opportunity Jesus missed. A guy with a lot of money who wants to follow you? Wouldn't you ask him to join, lead him to Christ and ask him to join the church? Jesus didn't. Jesus said, go and sell all that you have. Give it to the poor. Not bring it to my ministry, amen. Uh, No, it's give it to the poor. Come and follow me and you'll have treasure in heaven. And what happened? He went away sorrowing because he had a lot of possessions. It's a weight. Jesus said it was harder for a camel to come through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter into faith, to enter the kingdom of heaven. And wealth is something I've touched on a couple times in my life. My last year in practicing law, I made more than a quarter million. And I kind of like ran away from it. It was a scary thing to me. Because it just yells at you, build heaven now. Make your kingdom here. Make it nice. And we had this weird, this American suburban idea that I'm going to have heaven down here, and then the rapture's going to happen, and I'm going to have heaven up there. Yeah. Meanwhile, in Togo, they're living in the middle of a human hell and dying and going to hell. Right. That was loud. Man. Because I have walked, not in Togo, but through the villages of South Africa, 
And I have said to myself, as I talked to a 13-year-old who had just been raped, whose name was Happiness, and had a big smile on her face but blood running down her leg, will you live this life and then go to hell? For the sake of me living heaven in suburbia and then dying and, well, maybe not dying, maybe going up in the rapture and avoiding all of that. Luke 14, so therefore, any one of you who does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. Be careful. Forsake means this, okay? You got this thing in your hand. Forsake means that you do not wrap your fingers around it and say it is mine. So your new SUV, you hold with an open hand. That's what, that's what renounce means. To forsake means to say, if God wants it, I will not argue. If God calls me away from this stuff, I will not cling to it. I will not let it be a weight. It's not saying you have to spike it and get rid of it and sell all of it. It's, to renounce means to give up your legal claim, to say, it is not mine. All that I have belongs to the Lord. So the first is possessions. The second one, protecting my comfort zone. Well, you may complain about the crime and the government here in the U.S., but this is your world and you know it well. You know the stores, the schools, the restaurants, the vacation destinations. You have lifelong friends here and family are nearby to watch the kids. You have a nice church. Missions could change all of that to perhaps a new language, a new culture, new currency, new clothing, new tastes and smells, and perhaps you can handle it briefly as a tourist, but to live there permanently is quite different. In missions, one of the things we know from 1 Corinthians chapter 9, 19 to 23, is that we adapt to our host culture, to the Jews I became as a Jew, to the Gentiles I became as they. We adapt to our host culture. Change requires energy. And some discomfort. Back in my first term, you saw in the prayer cards, I was clean shaven. I grew this thing, it's called a bucky. In South Africa, the, the guys, they grow a bucky. It's just a guy thing. And we lived on the south side of Johannesburg, so I grew a bucky. All right. And uh, it stuck. And when I moved to the north woods of Wisconsin, they, they looked like Jeff. Um, <laughs> so I tried to grow that, but I only looked like Yasir Arafat, you know, that scrubby beard. He never had a good beard. I just thought, forget that. You have to adapt. You might have to wear skinny jeans. Jeff is praising God that he was not called to a culture where he had to wear skinny jeans. Can you see it? He's got the epic beard. He just needs that Northwoods shirt and then skinny jeans and cowboy boots. I can't even imagine. No. Fred Vermeulen with our mission worked with the Trio Indians, a Stone Age tribe in Suriname in South America. He worked in reducing their language to writing, translating the scripture, leading many of them to Christ. The elders eventually became missionaries and started going across borders, sharing with other tribes. It was awesome. One, one year he went back and they, they presented him this great friend that they had, Fred Vermeulen, a, a Dutchman who had come to Christ after World War II, they presented him with an honorary loincloth. Now, Fred is a rather modest 
sort of fellow, about six foot five. And uh, they, they, they held out this loincloth and he knew they had worked hard on this and he knew this was special. And so he, he said, thank you. You know, he received it from them and their way. And he said, would you like me to try it on? Yes. So Fred turned around and he went up the steps into his hut and changed into this loincloth. And he, he came to the doorway of his hut, which of course was elevated due to the floods and snakes and so forth. He came to the door of his hut and looked out at them. And they all looked upward with eyes beaming. They had never seen so much white skin in all of their days. And they said, you can go back and change now. <laughs> Missions may put you in an uncomfortable place. Acts 18, 9 to 10, when Paul went to Corinth, he was rattled and he got quiet. Paul, quiet? Yeah. You have a red letter edition of the Bible? You don't see a whole lot of red letters in the book of Acts because that's where Jesus is talking. You see it in this passage. What happened? Paul was so rattled, he got quiet, and Jesus appeared to him. The Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. You go outside of your comfort zone, you may go outside of the realm of safety. Our family, with four little kids, we went to Johannesburg, which at that time was the most dangerous city in the world in terms of total violent crime. South Africa, we have a rape about every 13 seconds. LA is America's worst city with two, about 2,000 murders a year on a bad year. New York is about 680. Johannesburg is 16,000 murders a year. We had 1,000 car hijackings per month at gunpoint. So when they say drive defensively, we, we really did. It moves you outside the realm of security. It is best, really, at your dedication service to just kneel down and yield yourself to the Lord as dead already. Somebody said, don't you know you could die out there? And you say, well, we died before we left. It just takes care of that issue so that you're not worrying about it. Third weight is providing a secure life. Ooh, you are in your field of education and expertise, and you presume that God would never lead you to walk away from that. After all, that would be a poor stewardship. My children might not be adequately provided for, might not attend the college at the best schools. But I was a lawyer by background, and let me tell you by personal testimony that God really doesn't care a whole lot about your career path. And sometimes he calls you to be downwardly mobile, and he calls you to be a fool. When I went to South Africa, we were involved in training leaders at Santon Bible Church that we were planting. Eventually, along came a medical doctor, Wayne Gordon, and his wife was also a medical doctor, Lindy Gordon. And they both had such a passion for ministry, they ended up studying in 2000, January 2004. Wayne wrapped up his practice, his medical practice, and became the pastor of that church and is still the pastor now 12 years later. Any of the gospels record Jesus saying, follow me to people who were otherwise gainfully employed, fishermen, tax agents. A growing minority at seminaries are people from business backgrounds 
what are known in the secular world as second career clergy. Those joining our mission are an average of 37 to 38 years old with varying backgrounds. But let me add this. You don't necessarily even have to leave your profession to get involved in ministry. There are some 60,000 tent makers now working overseas, a massive army of marketplace ministers who got jobs in Europe, Asia, Africa, South America, in IT or teaching English or engineering. When I travel now to a lot of countries like Indonesia we're going back to in June, I'm looking for business opportunities there in order to place teachers, in order to place business people. Helping out the local churches, yes, not necessarily as a vocational missionary, but also looking for vocational missionaries as well. So sometimes God calls you away from your trajectory upward in your career. Four, personal debt. This is a short point. You're not mobile because you have to pay off your creditors. So we've asked people to reapply, who apply to our mission sometimes with thirty dollars and $40,000 in personal debt. And we just say, come back. We'll see you in a year or two after you've paid that off. Number five, perfectionism. This has two sides. One is I'm not godly enough or have a bad past. Well, missionaries are church leaders who are sent out. That's what a missionary is. And church leaders, if you really get to know us, we got issues. We got things we're still working through. Nothing special. In fact, let me just say this. Moving cross-culturally throws miracle grow on all your sins. (laughs) And a lot of times you get to the field expecting to see this You know, it's like Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and the team of missionaries I'm going to work with. Ah, They all all be dressed in white with halos above their head. And then you realize, whoa, doggy, I had a wrong understanding of what this was going to be like. And you start to see the underside. By the way, you know, offhand, trivia here, what's the number one reason missionaries return from the field? Coworkers, the other missionaries they're working with. So in case you have an idea that, well, I'm not, I'm not, godly enough or I've got a bad past. Look, if you've got a bad past, God specializes in people with bad past. They stay humble. They're more useful. They tend to love God even more. Our sufficiency is of Christ. We are spreading the aroma of Christ everywhere, but who is sufficient for these things, Paul said. We're not sufficient. Our sufficiency is of Christ. Paul said, I persecuted the church. I was an insolent man. I was a blasphemer. Isaiah said, I'm a man of unclean lips. Perhaps he, had, he knew every swear word in the book. We don't know what the deal was with him. But they all, we all had sin issues coming to the Lord just saying, use me as your vessel. The other side of perfectionism is people who think, not that they're too bad to be used by the Lord, but people who live perfectly. People who live correctly. People who live punctually, orderly, cleanly, and to go out to places where there's no hand sanitizer and when you can't bathe your your kids twice a day, they they just can't imagine that. It'll be unthinkable. And so they're stuck in this perfect little germ-free world that is a sad and bizarre twist to humanity. Most of humanity really smells. We're the odd ones. Africans come to you and they say, my brother, you do not smell at all. 
What is wrong with you? <laughs> the missionary motto is flexibility and adaptability. If you are rigid, you will snap. You cannot be a perfect. Now, you can get a buy with a certain level of perfectionism in like Norway and Sweden and places where everything is done perfectly. But if you go to Africa, guys, we showed up for a two o'clock wedding. We were the only people, us and crickets, at the church. No chairs were set up. Nothing. There were crumbs on the floor from a youth event. And so Karen and I kind of knew the church, so we got the vacuum cleaner out and started vacuuming. 20 minutes later, one person shows up. Yes, they are getting ready to leave the home. Oh, any idea when they might be here? No. <laughs> Thank you. So at about, you know, 2.50, so, you know, 50 minutes later, some people start to show up and they start to arrange things and they're bringing some flowers and things and the bride showed up at 3.20. Now, if you are a perfectionist, you'll be like, I was here. You said two. I was here at two and I left at, at 2.10. I'm not staying around for a bunch of losers. Ah, there's your problem. You see, if you're not culturally adaptable, you have these big zones called right and wrong. And there's a little itty bitty one in the middle called different. You don't accord a whole lot of measure to different. But as you get out on the mission field, you realize that there's a lot that's not really wrong. It's just different. And your different box becomes a whole lot bigger. So perfectionism can be a weight. Preserving the closeness of family. It's a hard one. The front door cost of missions, leaving your brothers and sisters, your parents, your near family members. But remember, remember, there's a backdoor cost of missions. Backdoor cost is when your kids might leave and go back to the States to study and marry and stay there and have your grandkids there and you're far away. My daughter gave birth to the twins that you saw last night, if you were here, those twins were born in April. They were the first two of our grandchildren that we were on the same continent as a grandchild being born. That's the backdoor cost of missions. And sometimes you have to let it go. No, no, don't even go there. Okay, okay. I was at a missions conference one time in Georgia, and I had this young lady, teenager, and she was... She was ready to jump in our pocket and come with us. Tell us, tell me about it. And what is it like? And are you dealing with any orphans? And is there any way I could come? And all of a sudden, our mama slips in beside her. Y'all don't go be talking to my daughter about missions. I want my grandkids raised up around me. And I was like, holy smoke. Woman, do you understand what you just said? You selfish. No, I didn't say that. But I was thinking. Just trash God's will because I want my family staying right around me. That's an idol. Be careful. of that. Matthew 19, everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children, and I'm not saying little children, you bring them with, but and lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first living comfortably in this life will be last. And the last, those fools for Christ, who gave up so much will be first. Seven, physical conditioning. Sometimes it's simply a matter of losing weight. 
your weight is actually weight, <laughs> okay? That is, you are large, like very large, like you drive an SUV because you can't fit in anything smaller, okay? You go to the mission field to uh, Papua New Guinea, to little brown people. They'll think the moon god has come down, this large, <laughs> round, white thing. It's like, <gasps> so, yeah, our cousins over at New Tribes, They've had some heavy people come through and they said, we will do training initially, but you're going to have to go home and lose like 120 pounds. And the missionaries went back and they tried for a year and couldn't lose it, so new tribes dismissed them. I praise God for a mission who's willing to do that. Um, so, we're all sitting here after the dinner table, so let's move on to the next point. <clears throat> Patterns of the eye life. Oh, patterns of the eye life. I got to have fast internet, great coffee, daily baths, access to sports and TV, chic foods, eating out. My idea of camping is a four-star hotel. Oh, not good. But can I check Facebook there? Yes, if you drive about two and a half hours to a internet cafe that's online sometimes. I'm not going to that country. Whoa, whoa, whoa. You need to shoot that smartphone. You need to start saying, I'm actually going to do God's work and I'm going to be more of a stranger on social media. It's amazing how people are tied to their phones, and if they ever do anything with goggles, we're sunk. People are going to be walking around with goggles on their head. I just know it. But I have heard two missionary families that I wondered if something was up because he was complaining because in their foreign country they could not get American college football. And in time, they both left the mission field to come back to America because of this life, and if you live in a world that is media rich, I mean, we lived in northern Wisconsin. I mean, there's not a whole lot up there. You couldn't get cable and so forth. So, you know, we're barely getting phone signal. But I just moved to Atlanta three weeks ago. Unlimited data. And I felt the evil creeping. I could get used to this. I've got like 35 restaurants within a three-minute drive of my house. It used to take me a half hour to get to a restaurant. Yeah, we can become very comfortable and we cannot imagine life that is without the I life. Number nine, pretending passion. This is a sad thing. This is called, this is called being fashionate. We missionaries get kind of jaded and cynical. People are like, hey man, I'm really passionate about orphans. Really? How much exposure have you had? Oh, I've never seen an orphan before. Passion, dude, passion is from the word pati, which means to suffer. A person in a hospital is a patient, a patient. That which you're passionate about is something that you cry and you weep and carry on and shake and it drives you nuts until you can take care of or address that problem. That is what being passionate, it's not a fun thing at all. But people are like, hey, dude, I want to like change the world by Friday unless I change my mind first. That's being fashionate. 
Oh, I'm all about orphans. I'm all about this. I'm all about, we call it in South Africa, we call it volunteerism. Guys that come down as volunteers. So it's like, hey man, let me take a picture of myself. I got an orphan. Oh, let me get cry. Hang on. Okay. I got pictures. I got tears and an orphan. Yeah. Social media, my life is now complete. I'm going home. What a jerk. Get out of my Africa. Go home. That's called volunteerism. Somebody trying to sanctify a vacation and connect to something to impress friends. It's a weight. It's fake. We don't need fans of Jesus. We need committed followers, radically devoted servant leaders. We need desperate prayers. And lastly, prejudice. This kind of gets back to perfectionism a little bit. This is not overt racism. This is prejudging, putting someone or something into a box without seeking understanding. Because believing that because my way of life and my ethnic culture is good for me, it's best for everyone. And that their hygiene, their clothing, their ceremonies, and their taboos are wrong or inferior. Let me come to help you. Because I'm an American. And in America, everything is just like better. Bring your Togo food to America and we'll make it Togo and steroids. Because we're America. We do everything better. We got the best coffee. You have worms in your coffee. You know? Yes, but we like the worms. Dude, you need to get a life. That's why you're a third world country. I'm from a first world country. That's what I'm talking about. Is, is what's known as colonialism. Is not just taking the gospel, but it's, a, it's actually a form of evolutionary thinking. You guys are way back there. We are more evolved. Let us help you become civilized. As opposed to bringing the gospel and blending it into their worldview to change it in all points that it needs to, but preserving the integrity of their culture rather than saying, wipe out the culture, let's make them Americans in Africa. Prejudice is a weight. The truth is that it is God's will that the whole world should be without any barriers of race, color, class, or anything else that slows the light from spreading. The more multi-ethnic your church, the easier your transition into missions. We need to celebrate the differences of their cultures. Every culture, every person has within them the image of God. Every culture that they create, profoundly fallen, profoundly broken, but it does contain the image of God. And it contains something for you to learn. Something from which you can benefit. Ubuntu, ingamuntu, ingabantu. A person is a person through another person. You realize that there's a richness in African culture that is the reason that AIDS orphans don't just die. They just, if a kid's parents die, their family dies, you bring them into their home. You don't turn them over to the government. You don't put them in an orphanage. You bring them into your home and you make them your child. It's called Ubuntu. Boy, could we use that in our individualistic culture. There's beauty to be learned in their cultures as well. Image of God in their cultures that will improve you as a person. So we must be careful not to go with prejudice. So when God begins to call you toward missions or ministry, weights tend to be the things most people think of. Could I really do this? Could I put all these things at risk? Whether or not you go, you need to renounce them. 
God may want you to change nothing about your outside life as a result of this weekend. But inside, your mindset will totally change. I'm a fully yielded, fully dedicated, fully renounced servant of Jesus Christ. Everything that I am and possess, I give over to the Lord to use it however he wants me to. And if he chooses to move me to strange lands, then so be it. I am his servant. I am the glove on his hand, and I will not stuff the glove with the tissues of myself, my self-life, but I will empty it out so that his hand fits neatly into my life and it can move at the slightest impulse of his love. God, where, whatever, wherever, whenever, make me a radically committed follower of Jesus Christ. I'm laying aside the pet sins and the hindering weights. I'm going to carry the light of the gospel because I can see thousands who have gone before me that have done the same. And I've seen Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who did the same. I'm going to run so that the neighbors and the nations and the next generations may see the light of the gospel. Even if many reject it, that's not my business. My business is to be fully yielded to him. Let's close in prayer. God, our Father, we cling so closely, so tightly to the things of this world. And Father, if we live for these things, then when we lose them, we we have nothing else to live for. Father, help us to let go of all of this stuff. The things, the relationships, the aspirations, the expectations of others. All of the weights that slow us down. Help us to be empty vessels that you would fill with your spirit. Teach us what your will is. We'll do it by your grace. It might be hard. It might be beyond what we you we ever thought the places that you would take us. But Father, we want to do your will for the sake of the kingdom, for the sake of your gospel, for the sake of your name. We pray in Jesus' name.